Hi there. I'm with my good friend, Eugene Fraser, who um, has such an incredible background, uh, and I'm going to let him talk a little bit about it himself. But I do want to say before we start that Eugene is my executive coach, and I have to say that I am a better person and a better leader as a result. So um, Eugene, rather than me waxing on and on about all your accomplishments, why don't you tell our audience basically the salient points that you want to communicate? Well, first of all, Denise, I would say you're far too kind, uh, but uh, my objective is to do the very best I can at anything I do. And so with that being said, I'll talk a, just briefly a little, a little bit about my background. Uh, I am a former human resource executive from Motorola, uh, Inc. I worked for Motorola for about 20 years uh, and uh, basically have responsibility for over 28,000 people worldwide and traveled extensively and did business across 32 different countries. And so that's that uh, period of my life. The other aspect of that, uh, I have uh, a background from a clinical perspective, uh, approximately 20 years. So for those of you who are listening, don't forget, don't think about the age or the, uh, the number. It's all about your ability to sustain and thrive wherever you are. And so from that perspective, 20 years of clinical experience has afforded me an opportunity to study behavior, uh, observe behavior, personality, techniques, and strategy, which I use in my business realm as well. I also have a business background and a academia background, which affords me to really kind of leverage all of those skills when it comes to training, development, doing leadership development, and doing coaching. And I think that's enough about Eugene. <laughs> Thank you. Eugene, as, as you know, um, in addition to your incredible skills as an executive coach, what I'm really interested in um, for the purposes of this podcast is the connection between executive coaching and cultivating strong leaders and inclusion, because of course that's that's uh, the journey that that we're on here at Lead Inclusivity. So we're going to leverage you, if you don't mind, um, with regard to that. And my very first question for you is, um, and, and and this is very broad. You can answer it any way you like. But um, is the world ready for diversity and inclusion? In your in your opinion, I don't think so. And the reason why I would say that is that if I think in my past. I was innovating and creating from a diversity inclusion perspective, but back then we called it diversity awareness. Mm -hmm. And the ironic thing about back then is that when you mentioned the subject of diversity, people wanted to run and hide. And I don't think it's changed very much since then, but what's changing about it now, the economics around us, the flow of business and how businesses are either thriving or declining is causing us to look at that as a core competency as it relates to businesses sustaining. So I think we have their attention, but are they there to fully be inclusive? Not yet. Okay. All right. Well, um, I mean, it's interesting because I think when, when we first started this journey way back when, there was 
a certain um, focus on diversity and inclusion being the right thing to do. And now, as you said, there, there are some economics associated with this. So there's the, there's the risk associated with um, not treating people fairly. Obviously, it has legal implications, which can really be a problem for organizations. And then there are some failure to to be able to leverage the opportunity of inclusion to accelerate innovation to um, to give us decreased attrition and increased employee engagement you know why is it that we're not uh, taking advantage of this incredible opportunity to understand each other and to make sure that everyone feels that they belong so that we can all thrive and all give the thought leadership that's in, inherent in, in us. Well, I would just say, Denise, that first and foremost, when we talk a little bit about, uh, are they ready? And then the other question, uh, are they prepared to do the right thing? I think the whole notion of doing the right thing may not be given the level of visibility that it needs to in a kind of a granular way. So let me explain what I mean by a granular way. We're expecting leaders to essentially become more aware of diversity and the need to participate in the process that affirms and appreciate diversity. But what's happening is that we want them to gain that first phase, which is acceptance. Mm -hmm. And what we misunderstand about acceptance, acceptance is essentially the beginning stage of starting to look at diversity. But the true stage of entering into diversity, altering your frame of mind, changing your behavior, becomes more prevalent when you can engage in what I call embrace diversity, embrace inclusion because the word acceptance is an internal thought process mm -hmm. that we all reflect on. You don't have to say or do anything to demonstrate it. It's all internal. Right. And then when you talk about embrace, embrace is like giving a hug to someone. You have to engage in some tangible behavior to begin to demonstrate where you're at and where you desire to go. Like what? So one example would be, if I am a uh, person and let's say uh, I'm a leader in a given organization, I'm having some issues with retention. I'm having some issues with my uh, individual team that I'm focused on on a day-to-day -day basis. The true way of embracing, and this is going to sound a little awkward, but I'm going to put it in perspective. Okay. So, Leadership, when I'm engaged in doing leadership development, what's very clear to me, people think they can get trained. They think they automatically walk in and have some instinctive feel to be a leader. And they know all of the facets that go into that leadership role. But the issue is, is they're dealing with everything external. In order for a leader to truly understand diversity, begin to embrace it, and to take those behaviors and put them in perspective, they must begin to develop themselves from the inside out, their frame of mind, uh, what their environment looks like, the whole notion of awareness, and are you truly aware of what's around you 
And better yet, are you aware of how you're interacting with those individuals? And are you also aware of how your behavior directly impacts or disenfranchise them? Okay, so it's a, so how do you go about um, gaining that awareness? Because these are these are some difficult conversations, um, and it's it, it, it's very difficult to evaluate your own behavior without some sort of objective feedback, and yet getting that objective feedback is not always easy. I would concur. So there's every uh, assessment under the sun out here as it relates to 360s that individuals can take that can give them uh, quantitative, qualitative feedback and narrative feedback. But the inherent piece that is different with that is you using an instrument as opposed to uh, me saying, Eugene, in most cases, do you get it? Do you know what your strengths are? Do you know what the liabilities are associated with your strengths? And then along with the deficits, why are they deficit? Have you chosen not to evolve them and improve them? Or have you began to take a look and you're honest with yourself? And I'll toss out just a general coaching terminology. In order to be a good coach, you have to be able to displace self. But that means that you, in displacing self, you truly have to know who you are. Mm -hmm. And when you show up, how do you show up? It's so true. I mean, I, a lot of times when I am interacting with you during the course of our um, uh, executive coaching sessions, you know, I'm, you know, hoping that you're going to give me some quick and easy answers. And instead, you just keep asking probing questions. <laughs> I've noticed that, Eugene. That's the protocol. Yep. And, uh, and, it, and, and it's interesting because if I'm having let's say I'm having an interaction with someone in a business environment and they're saying something that kind of really triggers me. The typical thing would look like this. It would look like someone saying, Oh my gosh, this whole diversity and inclusion agenda. It's just, just nonsense. It takes our eye off the ball of business. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't understand why women or people of color think that they need a leg up. You know, we, I, you know, I've worked hard my whole life to get where I am and, and somehow I am disenfranchised just because women and people of color think that they should, you know, have an extra, you know, some extra support. And I can feel my, you know, my chest tightening. And uh, I just want to sort of respond in a, I'm just going to say less than professional manner. And every, every once in a while, I can take a deep breath and just say something like, Tell me more about that. <laughs> you know, let me, you know, let me hear some more and really try to reach out with understanding in order to keep the conversation going. Because the problem is that if I just get super upset and, 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 and come back at it and it becomes this pejorative discussion rather than an exploratory discussion, we're never going to be able to educate anyone or help anyone to come to a position that might be slightly different from where they are. May, may I reflect on what you just yes, said? Yes, please. This notion of sitting in a meeting and everyone is making excuses around why they can't embrace diversity and begin to evolve themselves into inclusion behaviors 
the, the thing that I would tell anyone, and I as an African-American male have to engage in this all the time because I don't have a choice. I can't change my nationality. I can't change my point of origin, any of those things. I am who I am. And so with that being said, if an individual is coming across in this manner, I would ask them a few questions. Uh, when have you been disenfranchised recently? And when have you desired to be in an inner circle Oh, a woman, I'm sorry. Uh, no, Eugene, a woman has gotten this position instead of me because she's a woman. A, a person of color got this position because they had a leg up and they got they got the position instead of me when I was more qualified. Well, thank you for sharing that. But let me just ask you this. If you are in a position and you strive to get there and someone else got it, it's all about the right person for the job with the right skill set to achieve the right outcomes that's desired. That doesn't have any color, background, treat any of that associated with it. It's all about are you getting the best innovative talent to fill the roles and positions that you're able to retain and to keep them into the system and move them through the system so that the environment can truly benefit from it. And so will I argue with you? Absolutely not. But let me make one thing clear. You have your point of view. The people who are being disenfranchised have their point of view. Where does the truth lie? Somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And who is being, who's being participatory in the process to change why we look at things the way we look. But how do we, how do we share that point of view without sounding like it's sour grapes? Well, uh, the only thing I can say, and this comes from 20 years of clinical background and experience, and there's something unique when you start to talk about religion, politics, and diversity. And by the way, they all go in the same bucket. Because when you get into spirited conversations, we all have our opinions and thoughts and ideas. But for the most part, I would strongly encourage people to look at two things. There's a lot of things in life that's very, very emotional. But embracing diversity, aligning and leveraging diversity, that's a business proposition. That's not personal. You're 100% right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a, a couple of um, very specific questions. First of all, let me remind our audience, I'm, I'm here with Eugene Fraser, and he is uh, a, a, a phenomenal executive coach, uh, a former senior leader at Motorola, uh, a researcher, a, uh, a leadership um, development expert, um, uh, a diversity advocate. We're very, very lucky to have him with us here today. And I want to, I want to um, make sure that I give um, leaders the benefit of some of your advice, and so, and so ask some very, very practical questions if you don't mind. Um, I want to make sure. So, so for example, um, 
we tell leaders to, to be on the lookout for the quieter voices in the room because among other things, you know, certainly introverts are quieter than extroverts and, and they sometimes have incredible thought leadership, but they're unlikely to contribute that thought leadership uh, if those thoughts are not uh, fully formulated. And so sometimes a leader has to pay a special attention to make sure they get that contribution. But sometimes those quieter voices are also women uh, and people of color because we have historically um, felt that our voices have not been heard. So what can leaders do to, to try to bring out those quieter voices in a group environment? So if I may, Denise, I'd like to reframe, but still answer your question. I wanna put it in a perspective that you can see a few tears to this because it's unfortunately it's not that simple. And so the quieter voices in the room just became a very, very global issue. It's not just a physical individual sitting around the table or in a conference room or in an office having a meeting it's more about the people who are sitting around the room, the dynamics of what occurs physically there in the room, the louder voices, the more boisterous voices versus the individuals who are uh, kind of removed and quiet. And then you have this extension of that uh, because we are a very mobile world. Uh, you got people who are uh, operating in a virtual mode. They're at home they're in a remote office, they're in another state, they're in another country. So it's important to understand what the dynamics are going on in those environments. And the last portion of what I would share, and then I'll go back to your original question of what we can do. The last aspect is this whole notion of when people are gathered together, do you have a beginning point that you're able to ground everyone, whether they're in the room, they're on the phone, they're in another country, they're in a different time zone. All of those factors of highly affect, affect your ability to communicate well, to speak to be heard, to speak to be understood, and then also facilitate the dynamics of the meeting. I'll stop there for a moment. All right. That's, that's just, that's awesome insight um, that we can't look at it in a sort of singular way. We have to kind of look at it in, in layers. Are there any additional layers to this that we should know about? Uh, yes. So let me uh, create a scenario. The scenario is as follows. You are in a meeting and you have all three components. You have individuals in the room and you have individuals that are more extrovert oriented and outspoken and speak up often. You have other individuals that may be somewhat uh, laid back and or uh, not speaking out, but we'll talk a little bit about why that may be occurring. And then you have people on the phone. And so when I look at all of that dynamics, I began to say, how do you start a meeting? And it goes a little bit like this. Today, everyone, we are here and we're gathered for this meeting. The topic at hand is diversity inclusion and how we do that in our environment. And I have people here in the room who are very outspoken and communicate well. I have others that I have still the opportunity to begin to access your minds and your hearts 
to understand what you should be sharing with us that you haven't shared with us. And those people on the phone, we want you to really understand that we know that you're X number of hours difference than, than we are today. You may be early in your morning or late in your afternoon or into the night. We respect the fact that you're sacrificing to be on the call. And as a result, I want to start us out with a discussion on diversity and inclusion. So we'll pause there for a moment. The I, I love the way I love the way you actually acknowledged that you know these people who are on the phone in a in a different time zone you know that it may be like at you know at the typical wrong time you know when kids are coming home from school or when it's supposed to be in the middle of a meal or at four o'clock in the morning when you should still be asleep. Um, it is amazing how frequently calls get scheduled like that without any regard to the time zone. And sometimes that is simply unavoidable, but to acknowledge it and just say to our colleagues in wherever it is in Japan or wherever, um, thank you so much for the, you know, for the hardship that you've undergone to, you know, the sacrifice to be on this call. We, we truly respect and appreciate it. I mean, that goes a long way to um, just that acknowledgement, uh, you know, as opposed to taking it for granted. So I love that you said that. So the, the other thing, Denise, I would say is that uh, let's use the focus of the meeting is occurring and at the very beginning, we typically step right into a meeting. Uh, if, depending upon how efficient they are, they may have an agenda, they may not, but it should have a agenda that will drive the scenario. But as we just walk through people in the room, uh, more communicative type of people, those who are more quiet people on the phone, what's important to understand what dynamics is going on in their environment right now. So how's the weather there? Uh, how, and if it's on a Monday, how was your weekend? And, and you allocate five minutes or more to just talk small talk because that small talk gives you gleam into their personal life gives you a little gleam into dynamics of what may be going on geographically. Those are all data points that you can leverage to your advantage. And it's so amazing, those cross-cultural differences, right? Because in the, in the United States, if we don't, you know, somebody comes in, in, the, in the room or, or you're on the phone, you know, if it's personal, it might be, you know, I hope you didn't have any trouble getting here. Would you like some coffee? And then boom, you're right into the meeting and you're immediately, you know, into the agenda, which of course, from certain other parts of the world, they think that we're just crazy, you know, that we have absolutely no ability whatsoever to create any sort of trust or rapport. And then vice versa here in the States, if, if you know, if we're with our you know, colleagues from Italy or Spain or wherever, you know, where they actually are asking us about our lives, our weekend, our, our spouses, our kids, uh, the, you know, the, the, any sort of dynamics that we might be dealing with um, environmentally or politically or what have you, then we think that they're wasting time. So there are, all, you know, there are all these differences in terms of creating rapport and trust and all these judgments and assumptions that are made when we're not keeping our minds open to the fact that different people establish trust and belonging uh, quite differently. Absolutely. So if I may, Denise, I want to get back to your core question. Sure. How do you manage the quieter contingency in the group to help them to feel included 
and as part of the process. Right. So that quarter contingency is important for us to look at them in a couple of different ways. You have senior leaders who have gone through their progression and their track in their business. And there's something unique about it. The higher you go up the ladder, the more your environment is uh, not forgiving of how you behave or not behave. And to try to figure that out really kind of puts you in a place where uh, you used to have a lot of curiosity as a leader. You would go after things, explore things. You would even speak out of turn because you had a thought and an idea. Over a period of time, people beat you down and to the point that you lose that voice. Sometimes it's important that the leader who is sitting in the meeting, starting the meeting, acknowledge the fact that there might be people in the room that feel like they have a voice, but it's in their head. They haven't been sanctioned or the environment has not been created to make it conducive so that they can exercise and voice that uh, communication and give a feel to that voice and give detail to that voice and give innovation to that voice. So as leaders, it's important that you sanction the environment and create the right environment so people are not fearful of expressing themselves, even if it's kind of intuitive to the direction that you might be going as a leader. I like that. I like that. In general, um, are there any sort of, um, is there a way that a, a, leader, a leader can um, start a meeting that sets the tone for inclusion? Um, and then are there, is there anything that leaders can do throughout the meeting that would make sure that that tone of inclusion is maintained throughout the meeting? I have a very tangible one for you. Okay, awesome. So, and I've utilized this technique myself. Uh, we talked about all of the dynamics of people being in the room uh, on the conference call and maybe even out of the country or another state or a remote location. But the key thing here, if we really gonna pull people in I would tell anyone, and I spent a lot of time working with scientists on a day-to-day -day basis, to consider the rose-colored glasses that you look out of every day is only what you see. But you cannot make that be something that everyone else see unless you give them a role to play in your process. So hypothetically, here's the example I would give. The example would be prior to the meeting, you would publish an agenda and you would designate key people that you wanna bring out to start and kick off the meeting if they're doing updates. And you go to those individuals that you don't hear their voice that often. You highlight and you showcase them. And then you do that across the team so they're not separated from others but it's a technique to call out individuals, give them that individualized attention, and you're showing that you value their opinion. That's why you're putting them on the agenda. The mm -hmm. other thing is always communicating what your expectations are in the space of diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. 
All right. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, and I'm just going to remind our listeners that I'm here with Eugene Frazier, who is an executive coach, uh, a thought leader, uh, a former senior executive at Motorola, uh, with clinical expertise, coaching expertise, and we are very, very lucky to have him. Uh, we're tapping his knowledge on a number of issues, uh, and one of them I'd like to talk about is the whole concept of inclusivity in coaching. So, uh, you know, you identify uh, as, a, as a black man, I identify as a white woman. Um, there are others that might identify differently as a, as a white male, as a, as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And each of us might be charged in some way as senior leaders to coach um, others who are not like us. Uh, how do we uh, incorporate inclusion into our coaching style? And what are some of the things we have to, you know, that have to be on our radar when we coach someone who's different than we are? Okay, that's an excellent question. I want to tell you a, a real brief story because it'll give credence to the techniques that I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to say about 15 years ago, I had the pleasure to be master certified by RHR International out of Chicago in coaching. Uh -huh. And the uniqueness of that, Motorola provided me this coach for six months and we scheduled a meeting. We were sitting face to face in my office at Motorola. And I said before you start your process and begin to coach me, I need to be highly transparent with you about something. And I asked her, I said, have you ever coached a African-American male? And she said, yes, I have. And I want to ask you, what has been your success? And she was very frank with me. She said, it was trial and error. I didn't necessarily think that I did a good job. And I said, but you will with this African-American male. And I said, let me tell you why. Our background and our, and I'll call it a struggle, uh, the challenges that we have to experience in corporate America, uh, working three times as hard, as long, and as persistent to get incremental uh, credibility or uh, any form of acknowledgement. And I said that that means that we are constantly always striving to move forward and move quickly. The second aspect of that is that we have an ego structure that don't necessarily bow down to people. And if you're looking for me to bear all and you're not gonna know what to do with it, then it might be problematic. I asked her at that time, are you open, open to me teaching you how to coach an African-American? And we ended up writing a paper on that uh, in, in reference to coaching African-Americans. And she utilized the technique and strategy that I gave her to really connect with me. You want to share a little bit of that? Just uh, whatever you feel comfortable with. Uh, well, uh, the, one of the things that I told her, I said, uh, you will never, ever get me to show you vulnerability because vulnerability does not allow me to be poised, focused, and 
without, if I bring along the emotion and I show that vulnerability, I'm going to be perceived as someone who's not on point, someone who is not thriving and in the mode, because I just said three times as good or better than the average person. Now, so, I, now I, want to, I want to interrupt you because I, this surprises me because I consider you very able to be vulnerable and to create that sort of human connection. So tell me about that. <laughs> Ah, uh, okay, this was back then. Okay, so you were basically informing her where you are right now and what you felt that your limitations were mm-hmm. in terms of your life experience and where what that leads you to. And I said to her, when you get to the emotional piece and you ask me that question, how do you feel about that? You're going to have to push me because I'm not just going to give it to you. Okay, all right, gotcha. Um, and so the, the other quick thing that she was able to do, I talked with her a little bit about the fact that you don't give us conceptual type of homework. Uh, if you want to move us along and influence our leadership capability, the first thing you must do is give us tangible things to do that's going to map back to us to affirm and appreciate either where we're already at of where we're striving to go. And she how, said, absolutely. How, how, I'm curious, how has that changed? That was then, this is now. Tell us, tell, tell us about the difference between who you are now and, you know, versus what you just described. Well, as a leader, as a coach, I have really become closer to understanding what my values are and how I'm valued as a person, how I'm valued as a employee, how I'm valued as an entrepreneurial person and a coach. I know what those values are. And those values are really deeply grounded in me. The other aspect is I was in the midst of discovering my gifts. I truly know what my gifts are right now. Mm -hmm. And I have gifts in this space that we're talking about right now. And this comes first nature to me, but I had to evolve to that point. You know, it's so, it's so interesting because, you know, I mean, you've done that for me too, you know, as, as a, as a, as, as my coach, um, I, you know, I was brought up to behave as if I have all the answers always all the time and need no help from anyone. And the reality is that, we can do everything we set out to do, but we do need to help to ask for help along the way. And one of the things you've helped me realize is that, that by being able to ask for help and, 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 you know, there's a nuance to that being able to ask for help from a position of strength, not necessarily from a position of weakness um, is it is, is actually a beautiful thing and gets you where you want to go. So I, I have become much more willing to know what I don't know, to ask for help, to surround myself with incredible people who can get me where I want to go and not try to be all things to all people and have all the answers all at the same time. Absolutely. And I want to keep you on point because you asked me another aspect of this question is what would I tell people who are coaching individuals who are different than they are? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the coaching premises Uh, that I learned at a very, very early period is that 
you cannot be a excellent coach. And I kind of learned it when I was working through, got my degrees in clinical related things. In order for me to be a great therapist, I had to have a therapist, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And be able to sifle through, put my issues at bay, because when you show up in a coaching engagement, you show up in a uh, session that's clinical in nature, you displace self at the door, and it's all about the person who you're coaching in front of you. Right. It's not about you. And so that's important in terms of self-awareness. The other thing is that we have this notion about coaching others is that some people approach it, well, I'm going to fix them. Uh, but you're not the fixer. You are the individual that is supposed to be a catalyst yeah. for facilitating and guiding people to through a level of discovery to understand and have, have ahas of who they are, what they're struggling with, and they come to those themselves. Yeah. The other thing is if we think we're so bright and dynamic that we can help others to realize absolutely everything about themselves? We can't because the answer lies in the coachee. You are the facilitator and the catalyst to tease it out. You know, it's so interesting. You should see, so you really, like for, for me, you really have been a conduit. And I noticed that, you know, you, you kind of put me in a position where you empower me in the sense that you help me to understand through your probing questions that I actually have the answers. Uh, perhaps I've been unwilling to see them or find them on my own. But when I'm asked to search deep within myself, I usually have the answers uh, and the guidance. Um, and so ultimately speaking, by the time you get through with the session, I kind of feel like, well, I, I, I solved my own issues. <laughs> I, I was able to, you know, correct my own, you know, leadership uh, challenges. Um, but the reality is that um, a good coach will, in fact, uh, check his or her ego at the door and, and help facilitate exactly what you are able to facilitate. One of the things I will say is, and again, not to, not to restate the obvious, you are a black man, I am a white wom- woman. I have never at any time during the course of our coaching together ever felt that disparity in the sense that it somehow was um, interfering with the coaching process or that you were lacking a sense of understanding or empathy for um, my particular unique situation. And I am part of that I know is, you know, because I know you well, that you're an empath and that you're, you know, part of that is just you and your own innate skills. But if you were to sort of try to translate that in some way to other individuals or to other coaches, what, what sort of advice would you give to not let those differences get in the way of doing the right thing by your, your coachee or your mentee? That's an excellent question, and I'll make it real simple. From my perspective as a coach, when you show up, you show up with two things in mind. You, first and foremost, affirming the individual for where they're at and appreciating them for accepting the fact that they desire coaching and that there is some quest that they're looking for 
that they are looking to get your guidance on for you to help them with. So affirming and appreciating them for where they're at and where they're going. The other aspect that I would toss out for coaches is to essentially focus on not necessarily problem solving, but engaging in behavioral, procedural processes with tools to help people to explore and discover themselves. Because if I teach you how to explore and drill down and pose alternative questions, search for alternative methods or techniques, when I walk away, you still hear me talking in the back of your head. So true, so true. Very, very true. Um, I'm, I'm here with Eugene Frazier, and I just want to, uh, to, to thank you, Eugene, for being with us here today. Eugene is a world-class executive coach, a former Motorola um, senior leader, and, uh, and, and, and I'm going to use the word empath and an empath, and I know that to be true, um, having known him for quite, a, quite some period of time. Eugene, I want to ask you, um, with regard to... Um, with regard to inclusion, what are some of the impacts of inclusive behaviors on trust and morale of the entire team? And I mean the insiders, the outsiders, everyone. What, what are some of the impacts on trust and morale on a team when, when people are using inclusive behaviors in their interaction? So inclusive behaviors in their actions and what are some of the outcomes? I would say clearly the outcome is that when the expectations are clear, it's a really terrific opportunity because everyone is put on a very level playing field. Having a level playing field is important. And when everyone understands the expectation, if there are expectations around how the, the team dynamics occurs, that means that you're calling it out specifically and everyone will look at each other, well, uh, Denise is expecting me to do these things and Denise is expecting us to do this. So even when the meeting is over, individuals are talking at the water cooler in the hallway after the meeting about what they must go do, but they're thinking collectively as a team. And team science and team dynamics can only be achieved by setting very clear expectations, identifying the components that are important to the success of the team and reiterating it. And the other thing that I would uh, say that, that has to occur, this is not a behavior that you just do in your meetings, it's done in your one-on-ones, it's done in broad meetings, it's done in broader team meetings, but what you're doing is you're practicing and demonstrating what people needs to see that will continue to influence and drive diversity and inclusion. And the dynamic thing about that is the fact that when people get it, they truly get it. But you have to not make it something that people just essentially began to Tolerate, and tolerate is the old word. Uh, now we're talking about embracing. 
that needs to be shown in behaviors. And when you start to see the behaviors and you see the team gelling and communicating and the dynamics that you'll see in future meetings will be the fact that the people sitting around the table, if you've done it all correctly and you are persistent and you practice it, they'll be pulling in their teammates to say, I think you may have some thoughts here because when we were talking before, you had some ideas. So now you got some peer pressure, some peer influence to pull people out. And even peer support. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Eugene, this has been so incredibly informative and I, I, sort of, I wanna give sort of a, a wrap up question um, now that we're pretty warmed up in our discussion and just say, you know, these conversations, you know, and, 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 and I want to say particularly with regard to race, right? Because it's become um, almost socially acceptable at this point um, to talk about gender as a, as a, as a, as a topic, um, you know, gender equity, um, you know, equality, it just seems to be socially acceptable. For some reason, when we try to have these difficult discussions um, regarding race, they seem um, just so much harder. Um, and I, I, I would really like to get some pers perspective from you. Is that sociological? It is, is it historical? Do we as, as, as white people have guilt over the you know, the history of our nation that created the kind of angst and discrimination um, on our end? Is there, um, a, you know, anger and resentment that, that, that sort of fuels the, the, the divide? And lastly, how do we stop that from happening? How can we have um, mature, adult, respectful conversations without running afoul or in any way um, uh, creating problems or discomfort for our colleagues? So the first response I would give would be more of a personal one. And then I'll map it over to a broader uh, response uh, on the basis of your question. I, as a African-American male, if I could get into telling you stories about my past and experiences, I personally am the type of person that don't look at the glass being half empty. I look at it, everything being half full. And with that being said, even though I had those tragic experiences in the past, I have learned how to take that anger and put it into positivity and take that anger and put it in a focal point that goes after eroding the system that have done it to me, so to speak. And so I'm actively doing that on a day-to-day -day basis. So if I transition from just that alone and what people would need to consider doing as they are looking to manage such a very volatile uh, type of discussion and focus, it's really all about how you're interacting. And I want to take us back to a discussion we were having earlier when I mentioned primarily 
that this whole diversity piece is so volatile that we get so caught up in the emotion and the emotions itself drives what we think, what we feel. And in most cases, it's subconscious. And there goes the clinical piece. It's subconscious, it's not conscious. So how do we become more conscious of what we're feeling when certain topics come up? When certain intensified processes, techniques from a change perspective occur. And let me just talk briefly. Change is not something we can turn the key and it's done. It's all about transition. People don't change, they transition. So it's really, Denise, about incremental movement of reframing one's mindset, uh, acknowledging the feelings as they are occurring, putting them in perspective. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Your ability to separate yourself from past experiences and feelings and operate in the moment. And I would say to senior leaders, if you're operating in the moment, considering the right intent and the desired outcome you have, you'll never go wrong. Okay, that's very good advice. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think a lot of, I think a lot of leaders will appreciate uh, that kind of insight. So I want to thank you so much uh, for being with us today. I, of course, have always deeply appreciated your insights on a myriad of issues um, in executive leadership. And this particular one, of course, is near and dear to my heart and near and dear to, um, to the interests of our clients and colleagues. So I want to thank you for your vulnerability, your empathy, your knowledge, uh, and, uh, and sensitivity in sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. And uh, this is Denise Hummel, CEO of Lead Inclusively with Eugene Fraser. And we are um, honored to be here to be of service to you. Please keep in touch. <laughs>